Good morning, everyone. Thank you for coming back on this uh, nice and chilly morning. Uh, as uh, I think it was John West yesterday talking to Dr. Van Dixon and said, you know, if you don't like winter, uh, you'll have it for a day and then it's gone. And so I think tomorrow it's supposed to be in the upper 60s, low 70s. And then we get another cold front uh, coming through on Mon- uh, Sunday night, Monday morning. But we're thankful that you're here with us this morning. I just wanted to point out a couple of uh, things to be on the lookout for in 2020 and, uh, and after um, uh, from Dr. Van Dixhorn uh, publications that are forthcoming. Uh, uh, he and his wife, uh, actually, in uh, 2020, and, and uh, Dr. Van Dixhorn was telling me yesterday that it's in the sort of the final revision stage. Uh, he and Emily, his wife, are uh, uh, working on a book called Christian Marriage. Uh, and if I understood you correctly, you're, you're actually teaching through this material at uh, Calvary OPC in Glenside uh, with, a, with a test group of, uh, <laughs> you got some test subjects just to <laughs> see if the material works or not. Uh, but anyway, be on the lookout for that. Also, uh, there's a monograph uh, that Dr. Van Dixhorn is putting out in, uh, should be in 2021, uh, the Westminster Assembly. Um, and then uh, one that caught my eye uh, uh, sometime in 2020, um, uh, the ESV Creeds and Confessions Bible. Um, and so something of interest to, to a number of us here. If you're a confessional, a confessional Christian, a confessional Presbyterian, uh, just confessional in general. I know we have some confessional Baptists uh, who may be here. And so something for you to be on the lookout for uh, in, the upcoming, uh, in the upcoming years. Um, we are uh, grateful uh, for Dr. Van Dixhorn to be here with us. Uh, this morning, his first uh, session, his first lecture is going to be on the Westminster Assembly and the Reformation of Worship. Uh, and so and then he'll close out uh, uh, beginning at 11 a.m. So we'll go from 9.30 to, to 10.30, have a break of about 30 minutes, and then start back up at 11 a.m. And at 11 a.m., uh, uh, his lecture will be on uh, the Westminster Assembly and the Reformation of Pastoral Care. <clears throat> so uh, at... Uh, Dr. Van Dixon's recommendation, another one of the, the psalms that would have been sung at the assembly. Uh, I <laughs> we had a funny moment where I said, do you have any other, uh, any other hymns in the Trinity hymnal, that would, psalms that would have been approved by uh, the, the, uh, the Westminster Assembly? And, and uh, he very kindly but, but humorously said, well, you know, I'm more concerned uh, about them being approved by God. It is a, a part of the Psalter. So, <laughs> so anything from the Psalter would be something that they would have approved of at the Westminster Assembly. Um, but we're going to sing hymn number one to open ourselves up this morning to, to bring uh, praise to the Lord. Uh, so if you would, please turn to hymn number one and stand, and let's sing this together. with fear his 
Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we ask for your blessing upon us in this meeting today. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would bless Dr. Van Dixhorn as he, as he gives us instruction, as he teaches us more about the Westminster Assembly and its lasting influence on worship and on pastoral care. So please, O oh Lord, may you be glorified in this assembly today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Welcome Dr. Van Dixhorn back to the pulpit this morning. Thank you. Make sure I've got my papers in right ears. Yes, that's kind of you. So should I be expecting a light to turn on like it did yesterday? Yes. Oh, there we go. Is it green? Yes. Right. Okay, very, very good. It's, uh, it's good to see a pastor wise enough to be using a hymnal um, in, in, uh, in worship. You'll know if you're, if you're a pastor or an elder that, uh, that, that part of your leadership training needs to focus around analyzing a congregation's hymn-sharing techniques, hymnal-sharing techniques. I came to this uh, transformative discovery as a seminary student um, about the time that I met my, my wife, Emily. We had been sharing a hymnal in church and chapel for a little while. Um, and and uh, some months after meeting her, in, in a daring move, I, uh, I pivoted from the inner hymnal hold position to the outer hymnal hold position. You know, the inner position is very platonic. It's when you're sharing with another guy. You go like this. You, you, you know, the, you, it's the inner hold. The outer, it's merely platonic. The outer hold signals pursuit. This is when you're sharing and you, you use the arm furthest from your sharing partner. Thus uh, uh, pivoting and also reducing the distance and potentially increasing the, uh, the intimacy between the sharer and the sharee. Of course, you'll all know, some of you by bitter experience, that if the, uh, if the sharee refuses uh, to adopt the outer hold themselves, but adopts an inner hold, it's all bad news. <laughs> but if they also adapt the, adopt the, the outer hold, well, good things can happen. I, I think that uh, this, this is it about worship after all. Uh, the, the, I think the hymnal pivot should probably be part of a, kind of an essential component part of pastoral counseling classes. You know, when, when, you, when, you, when you see it with your singles, when you see it with your singles, clear the, count, clear the calendar. Uh, for some premarital counseling. And when you see your, your married couples revert to the inner hold, it's probably time to dust off your Song of, Psalm, Song of Songs uh, Sunday School series uh, for, the, for the sake of cooling, cooling uh, uh, affection in the church. Uh, but I think I'm dig digressing, actually. Um, so about the Westminster Assembly, and, and not about hymnals anymore. Uh, Everyone who attended the Westminster Assembly was a Puritan, and as you may know, one popular uh, parlor game amongst uh, pundits involves defining Puritanism in the most negative and most amusing way possible. Uh, for example, uh, the dour strictness with which Puritans are wont to be stereotyped is wonderfully captured by H.L. Mencken's suggestion that Puritanism is the haunting fear that someone somewhere may be happy. Or by Garrison Keillor's comment that 17th century Puritans were the type of people who left for America in the hope of finding greater restrictions than were permissible under English law at the time. <laughs> I find these definitions amusing, even if they're not very fair. And yet it is difficult to define the term Puritan with a proper puritanical rigor. Uh, Puritans themselves preferred the term godly, uh, but that suggested that everyone else was not godly, which was not entirely fair. Um, I'm tempted to say that a Puritan is simply a, an earnest post-Reformation Reformed Christian in the British tradition, but that requires a lot of rounding and smoothing out of the edges. Maybe it's just better for now, as we talk about Puritans, to borrow the definition of historian Patrick Collinson, who calls Puritans the hotter sort of Protestants. Well, one subject about which Puritans could get heated was worship. 
And uh, that makes a lot of sense, as any gospel-believing Christian can tell you. Uh, uh, we have been made by God uh, to have a relationship with him. And as any Puritan would say, that relationship is one characterized by worship. Worship of the creator by the created. Worship of the redeemer by the redeemed. One of the great concerns of the Puritans, including those Puritans who would end up at the Westminster, excuse me, Westminster Assembly, was that people uh, thought about worship as something to be done at church and not done at home. Uh, uh, Sundays were, were serious, but the rest of the week could drift by uh, without any uh, thoughtful engagement uh, with, with the God who, who made us and saves us. It's in response to that, that kind of carelessness that uh, one of the members of the Westminster Assembly, a man named uh, Henry Scudder, uh, wrote his runaway bestseller, The Christian's Daily Walk. Uh, the most impressive part of Scudder's book uh, is, is his untiring persistence in leaving no moment of the day uh, untouched and thus unsanctified. As uh, Scudder, and Scudder works hard to make sure that the day which he's regulating for his readers is a very full day. Thus his opening counsel is for the godly to arise early in the morning if you be not necessarily hindered, following the example of our Savior Christ and of the good housewife in the Proverbs. For this world will ordinarily make for the health of your body and for the thrift both of your temporal and spiritual state. For hereby you shall have the day before you and shall gain the most and the fittest time for exercises of religion and the works of your calling. But one should not recklessly leap out of uh, of bed uh, to greet the new day. The very process of waking requires thought. In betwixt the time between your awaking and arising, if other pertinent and profitable thoughts offer not themselves, it will be useful to think upon some of these, Scudder says. I must awake from the sleep of sin to righteousness, as well as out of bodily sleep unto labor in my calling. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. I must therefore cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Assuming that these kinds of thoughts do not keep you in bed too long, your next step is to dress. Here especially, Scudder does not want sin to enter in. He, he wants us to be thoughtful. Uh, he wants us to have God in view even when we're dressing. So he provides seven directions for dressing, including the ideas that you should dress for your years for health and honesty, although I'm not quite sure what constitutes honest clothing. Um, As you consider your own social class, resolve to dress with the lowest, then with the highest of your state and place. Try not to look strange, immodest, or ridiculous, he says, and be sure not to take too much time putting it on. Well, trim time as you will, some time must be spent in dressing. And so Scudder provides some suggestions for godly reflection while dressing. Uh, And he plays with words such as fashion or fitting as he describes what people are to do. When you arise and apparel yourself, lose not that prime time when your wit is freshest. I think not everyone is freshest when they wake up and are getting dressed, but allowing the point. Uh, When your wit is freshest with uncertain and fruitless thoughts, as is the fashion of most men and women for to do. This is a fit time to think upon the cause why you have need of apparel, namely the fall of sin, the fall and sin of your first parents, which from them is derived to you. For before their fall, their nakedness was their comeliness, and seeing it, they were not ashamed. Furthermore, think about what you're actually wearing, the rinds of plants, the skins, hair, and wool of brute beasts, the spittle of silkworms, the very excrement and cast off apparel of unreasonable creatures. And so the day begins. <laughs> and all of that before breakfast. I said uh, one problem that plagued Puritans that was, was that some people were only thinking about God on Sundays. And Scudder attempts to fix problems like that. Their other worry was that people didn't think enough about God on Sundays. They didn't think enough about what God calls for in corporate worship, the worship of the congregation. One of the longest running complaints in the Puritan community, going back to the Reformation itself, was that Queen Elizabeth left the church half-reformed 
in its government and in its worship. Now, to be fair to Elizabeth, uh, she did inherit from her Roman Catholic sister uh, a country that was basically bankrupt, was deeply divided in its domestic policy, and was threatened by hostile foreign powers. She didn't feel like she had a lot of flexibility as she was setting up the church. Not only was she inclined, however, towards solving all those problems, uh, she was also inclined towards a Catholic-Protestant hybrid personally. It was her own style to be kind of halfway between her father, Henry VIII, and her brother. Practically, her decision was to clothe Reformation doctrine and Reformation priests, as she preferred them to be called, in Roman Catholic vestments. It meant, Catholic, it meant emphasizing some continuity with Catholicism for the masses, but with Protestant theological content that could be enjoyed by people in the know. For it was present in the liturgy, even if it was only obvious in the 39 articles. So she did have Reformed content both in worship and especially in the doctrinal standards of the church. But yet on a popular level, there were enough smells, bells, and special clothing, feast days, and other things to allow people to see continuity with the Catholic past. Like many compromises, it was a compromise that had the potential to upset almost everyone, both the Catholics and the more serious Protestants. And it might have upset the church entirely if it were not for the fact that most 16th century Englishmen were remarkably adaptable when it came to changes in the church. In fact, there were pastors, many pastors, who had made their peace with every phase of Reformation, Unreformation, and Re-Reformation in the English Reformation. They had managed to make their peace with every move that Henry made, and Henry was by no means a very consistent thinker. Then with Edward, then, then reversing back to Catholicism with Mary, and then into Protestantism again with, with Elizabeth. And these men kept their places in the church the whole time. The people who struggled most with these changes were, of course, Elizabeth's puritanical clergy, many of whom had been inspired by real worship, reformed worship on the continent. I should say, I should say real reformed worship. That's what I want to say. Uh, on the continent when they had fled from, from Queen Mary and persecution in England. These ministers and many church members as well who had fled to the continent came back and found Elizabeth and Elizabeth's successors a disappointment even if they were thankful for those few benevolent bishops who would not interfere with Reformed worship when they tried it out in their congregations, and even if they were thankful for the powerful political patrons who made their lives easier as they sometimes ignored the rules of the Church of England and the way they were supposed to worship. But what do you do with worship that's half-Reformed? Some Puritans under Queen Elizabeth, and then King James, and then King Charles, chose to do as they were told. These pastors were willing to call the Lord's table an altar. They were willing to bow to the altar, to cross themselves at the name of Jesus. And they even wore the hated vestments that Roman Catholic priests had worn while cheering on the burning of Protestants only years before. These conformists did what it took to stay in their pulpits because they feared the kind of man who would replace them if they would step down. For the good of gospel proclamation, they decided to conform. Others couldn't do it. They could not refuse, they refused to conform uh, to the liturgy of the church. Uh, the long services with its many prayers crowded out uh, the space that was needed for preaching. The lectionary left most of God's word unread in the worship of the church. The lectionary being sort of a schedule of readings, uh, which only covered at most 40% of the Bible. The enforcement of ceremonies was an offense to the liberty of conscience, an offense to, to God himself who wanted a simple worship according to his word. When the bishop or his agent came to town to check on the churches uh, in a given area, Nonconformists might stay at home for the day. A nonconformist pastor might suddenly feel ill and ask someone else to lead the service. Uh, he, might, he might compromise on the one day when the bishop's visitor was in town, the bishop's agent. Um, or perhaps he would leave town and 
find a sudden excuse for a family holiday. Some of them simply broke the rules in the presence of the bishop or his visitor and hoped for the protection of clever lawyers or sympathetic judgments to get them off the hook and keep them out of jail. And then there's another option. At least one clever Puritan did not, dis, uh, did not uh, uh, refuse to conform, but over-conformed uh, when the bishop's visitor came to town. He did not merely bow at the altar, as he was told. He bowed to the pulpit. Then he bowed to the baptismal font and bowed to the congregation. He didn't just cross himself at the name of Jesus. He just kept crossing himself uh, no matter what he was saying in the service. Um, uh, he overconformed, an option that most people apparently didn't think of. Uh, this was William Twiss, who later became the head of the Westminster, or the leader of the Westminster Assembly. Strikingly, almost no one chose to leave the church during these decades. Uh, and even those who fled to other shores, or who preferred or argued for other forms of government, would still see themselves as inside and not outside the established Church of England. Well, whatever the response, these were hard times for everyone who wanted worship without pageantry, the pageantry required by the bishops. As Stephen Marshall would later remind his friends during the time of the Westminster Assembly, there were many years when you were fain to get into houses privately to keep fasts together, afraid that any should see you, lest the bishops should know it. Why did you fast? Why did you utter such sad complaints to God? Why did your tears drop so? What was your burden? Why that he would uproot all those persecuting bishops and all the rabble that belongs to them, that we might have none but Christ's own officers and ordinances, pure, without this mixture, no rails, surplus cross, and so on. This was the business why men thus prayed and fasted. And for these things... The old solid Puritan prayed many years since, though they died before these times. Well, what those deceased Christians prayed for, and these living prayed for, God has given this generation. Well, to tell that whole story is beyond what we can do now. What is beyond what we can know now or do now? But this much we need to know. First, unlike Elizabeth. King James and King Charles were kings not just of England, but kings of England and Scotland. And second, by the 1640s, Scottish Presbyterians had got so fed up that they had actually taken up arms against King Charles and were pleased when English Puritans began to drift towards war also. Well, as I've suggested, religious and churchly complaints were many, and, and complaints about worship were way up there on the unhappiness scale. Um, and, and eventually, all at war would be seen, both in England and in Scotland, and even in Ireland. Opposition to the king would take three forms. Parliament itself would deal with legislative issues, issues dealing with law. Uh, the army would deal with military complications and a parachurch synod of ministers called by Parliament would solve or attempt to solve the religious problems in England and Scotland. Problems like worship. This gathering, of course, is the Westminster Assembly, the, 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 the group that I keep talking about here in these two days. Uh, a group which met in one capacity or another from 1643 all the way to 1653. Well, it was a no-brainer that when a... All pure, when the all-Puritan membership of the Westminster Assembly started meeting in 1643, that it would shake things up in the world of worship. And the Assembly's supporters were not disappointed with what the Assembly tried to do. But even before the Assembly's Puritans could formally begin their discussions about worship, other debates took place, such as the duties of, of pastors. And uh, debates over even pastors leading in worship were sufficiently complicated that everyone began to sense that it would not be easy being on the same page with respect to worship. It turned out it was easier to complain about what the church was doing than it was uh, to, to, to decide what would be right for the church to do. 
one example of the sorts of things that the assembly debated was the relationship between, say, preaching and reading the Word of God. It was November 1643. And someone in the Jerusalem chamber where the assembly met had asked if it was the pastor's duty to read the scriptures publicly in the weekly worship services of the church. Assembly members Thomas Temple and Thomas Gattaker insisted that it was the minister's duty and his alone to read the Bible in public worship. And they added that it was the minister's duty because the reading of the scriptures is the preaching of the scriptures. Well, members of the assembly were disappointed to hear that kind of argument from their peers. And they produced a variety of responses, uh, all of them ready to hand. Uh, Charles Hurl pointed out that in Nehemiah chapter 8, reading and preaching are in fact distinguished. Stephen Marshall declared that uh, Thomas Temple's argument that whatever ordinance works faith as a minister's special duty is illogical. People were saved when women and children read the scriptures. That did not make all of them ministers. Joshua Hoyle, who had often expressed alarm with Thomas Gattaker's ideas, uh, declared that his former teacher's equation of reading and preaching was dangerous, no doubt because the bishops made those kinds of arguments in order to squeeze out preaching in the worship of the church. Charles Hurl and Thomas Wilson argued that faith is ordinarily worked by preaching of the scriptures and not by reading. Romans 10, with its series of questions found in verse 14, were sufficient for these men uh, to establish the necessity of preaching and the difference between preaching and reading. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to, how are they to hear without someone what? Reading the Bible? No, Romans says preaching. Wilson's, Thomas Wilson's view, not unheard of in godly circles, was that no more of the Bible should be normally read in a worship service than the minister was able to preach in his sermon. Because the scriptures needed to be explained and pressed home to uh, the hearts of hearers. William Bridge, a Congregationalist at the assembly, agreed. And his revealing comment that he was unwilling to call it a sin to read more of the Bible than one preached testifies to how strong his conviction was on the subject. That kind of assertion, however, disturbed people like William Price, who insisted that he was not an advocate of illiterate clergy, but that he could not with patience hear the reading of the word of God so much undervalued as I have this morning. There was skill in reading it, he says, and profit in hearing it. Uh, Wilson, who was the object of these angry remarks, or at least emotional remarks, answered that his vehemency in making his point was not passion, some important distinction in his own mind. And he toned down his argument considerably. Well, in an effort to explain his earlier comments, Thomas Gattaker noted that Puritans really just played into the hands of the papists when they promoted a low view of the bare reading of Scripture. He did not like recent trends in the church with the bishops trying to squeeze out preaching and all of that, but were not Protestants the supposed champions of the Bible's clarity, power, and sufficiency? What is more, Gattaker showed, at least to his own satisfaction, that the New Testament revealed the people of God reading sections in the Bible that were too long to preach. And he noted that the apostle insisted that his letters be read in the churches. No one at the assembly doubted that these letters were scripture. No one assumed that after reading all of Romans, a preacher followed up by explaining all of Romans in a sermon. Well, the force of these kinds of arguments was indirect, but nonetheless significant. One way of demonstrating that the scriptures can be read profitably by themselves, without explanation, was to permit a larger portion of the Bible to be read publicly than was preached publicly. The sort of thing that your church probably does if you have maybe an Old Testament and a New Testament reading, but the sermon only comes from one of them. The practice of reading a portion of scripture that was not preached could be edifying, advocates argued. It was also a useful apologetic against Roman Catholics and the Roman Catholic assertions 
about the alleged insufficiency or lack of clarity of the scriptures. And in the end, most Westminster Assembly divines were willing to argue that more of the scriptures might be read, even should be read, than might be preached in a given Sunday, on a, in, in a given uh, worship service. There were other practical concerns to take into account. Philip Nye was concerned that to restrict the passage read to the passage preached would not sufficiently expose people to the breadth of Scripture. And remember, many people could not read. So what they would hear of the Scriptures would be often what they heard in the worship service. Others agreed, and Herbert Palmer expressed his pleasant surprise that so many in the assembly were in favor of public reading, that is to say, reading beyond the passage preached, because, he said, in committee it was denied. The extent of the passage read could exceed the portion preached, but the original question was still there. Who is to read the scriptures in the service of worship? Obviously, some people thought that only the minister should do it. Some assembly members thought anyone might do it. Thomas Goodwin thought the pastor could do it if no one else was available. Cornelius Burgess thought the pastor should do it unless he was not available. Unless... And, and even then, the pastor must ensure that it be done well by whoever he put in charge of the responsibility. A number of members of the assembly argued that a special class of person reads the scripture, read the scriptures in the days of the Old Testament, and that this suggested that ministers of the gospel should be doing it in the age of the New Testament. Thomas Wilson countered that arguments based on the reading and preaching practices of the Levites, such as in the days of Ezra or Nehemiah, uh, could not be straightforwardly applied to New Testament ministers. He had a hermeneutical concern that others shared, even if they didn't arrive at the same conclusions as Wilson. The majority of the assembly was convinced that some kind of public person should read the scriptures, whether it's the pastor or someone to whom the pastor would delegate the task, such as a deacon or a sexton or a candidate for the ministry. But the majority also concluded that the reading of the scriptures was not an absolutely essential part of a minister's office. It could not be definitively proved from scripture that a minister had to do this. And the existence of physically rather than spiritually blind preaching pastors mentioned by two Westminster divines proved that you could be, they argued, an effective minister without engaging in the public reading of the scriptures. Given that there were ministers who were blind and did a good job preaching, they argued, it could not be an essential part of a minister's job to be reading the scriptures. It was an interesting argument, certainly not one I would have thought of myself, having never met a lot of blind preachers. In December 1644, the assembly replaced the Book of Common Prayer, which had been used since the days of Edward in some form, Elizabeth in another form, they replaced it with a new book. The word replacement is actually a bit of a surprise. Prior to the Westminster Assembly, most Puritans would simply have asked for revisions to the book. It would have been enough to get rid of some portions or features in the book, maybe the lectionary, the high quantity of fixed prayers, advocacy of reading homilies, feast days, kneeling at communion, the minister not facing the congregation at communion, private communion, only bishops allowed to admit new candidates to communion, private baptism, godparents at baptism, the sign of the cross at baptism, reference to saints, the churching of women and Episcopal government. It would have been enough just to tweak the Book of Common Prayer to get rid of those things. But it seems that the weight of all these complaints and other objections began to sink the idea of revision and led to replacement of the Book of Common Prayer with what the assembly called the Directory for Public Worship. The directory's title was typical of the time, long and delightfully descriptive. <laughs> A directory for public prayer, reading the Holy Scriptures, singing of psalms, preaching of the word, administration of the sacraments, and other parts of the public worship of God, ordinary and extraordinary. The directory is a long document, about 10% longer than the Confession of Faith uh, that the Assembly would produce two years later if one does not include the Assembly's proof texts. The directory itself never had proof texts. 
in some places the content of the 1644 directory and the 1646 confession overlap. Uh, same also with the catechisms. Uh, where there is overlap, those later texts could afford to be economical with their words, or a little bit economical, because of what had already been written in the directory. Uh, the preface to the directory offered a justification for this new worship manual. And as everyone expected, the assembly used it to explain what the old Book of Common Prayer was intended to do by the reformers and why it did not quite work as planned. The directory itself had two main parts, with the section on the Lord's Day serving as a kind of dividing line between the two. As the title I read a moment ago uh, mentions, there are ordinary and extraordinary parts of worship. The first part of the book discusses the ordinary parts of worship. The second part treats the extraordinary events in life that may or may not be associated with public worship, but still need some kind of comment. Uh, it needs comment either because the topic was previously mentioned in the Book of Common Prayer, or because it might still involve the minister or congregation in some kind of corporate act. Well, under the heading of the ordinary, the assembly recognized that there are things that must be done in the context of weekly worship and must occur at every service. This includes a call to worship and prayer and reading the Bible, lots of it as it turns out, singing psalms, preaching the word, and giving a blessing. There are also things that must be done in the ordinary context of weekly worship, but will not necessarily be there in every service of worship. Baptism is a good example. No matter how many massive Ford Econoline vans you may have in your parking lot on a Sunday morning, you're not going to have a baptism every week. Uh, baptism is part of the ordinary worship of God, even if there are weeks, maybe even months, without a baptism. As to whether the Lord's Supper is part of every week's worship, assembly members thought that the elders of congregations should determine this for themselves. There are also acts of worship that are extraordinary. In this category, the assembly placed things like marriage, visiting the sick, which it might involve helping the sick person try to worship God, as well as public fasts and public thanksgivings. The assembly explicitly warned against turning a burial service into a service of worship. Uh, although it was fitting for a minister to explain what people should be thinking about when they're at a burial. The basic distinction between ordinary and extraordinary seems clear enough. But the directory itself, although it's an edifying book and a useful book, is an oddly ordered book. If the old Book of Common Prayer was like a posh furniture store of worship liturgy with everything assembled, polished, and ready to go, the Directory for Public Worship offers a kind of Home Depot for worship, uh, a DIY liturgy, merely offering all the component parts which then you need to assemble yourself as a minister. There are directions to go by, to be sure. The sermon, for example, seems central in the service. Uh, indeed, parts of the directory are ordered with respect to that pivotal, pivotal part of worship. Uh, you know, the prayer before the sermon, the prayer after the sermon. The sermon is clearly a centerpiece. But if the sermon is central, the logic or flow of the service is not actually specified. And in fact, while the directory's different parts are clearly labeled, they are arranged a little bit poorly, giving the user of the directory the sense that he's being sent to the paint department for plumbing supplies. I mean, ra rather than being placed in the ordinary parts of weekly worship, found in aisles 1 to 5, the singing of psalms is lumped into extraordinary acts of worship down in aisle 14. Um, there are other oddities as well. Uh, the assembly indicates that Sunday weddings are not a good idea. We advise that it not be on the Lord's Day, but that visiting the sick is an excellent Sunday activity. Nonetheless, the section on the Lord's Day is followed by one on marriage and not by one on visiting the sick. Now, the explanation for this has something to do with the attempt 
to replace the Book of Common Prayer with a new directory while still paying some attention to the contents and presentation of the book that they're replacing. In other words, the structure of the directory for public worship can only be fully understood if you compare it to the existing Book of Common Prayer that they're trying to get rid of and replace. Well, of all the changes that the Westminster Assembly brought uh, to the Church of England, the directory offered the most visible victory for the reformists. The directory displaced bishops and committed users of the old prayer book. It suddenly made the people who were in the mainstream off in the eddies. Their existence was now as nonconformists in a Puritan world rather than the Puritans being nonconformists in the bishop's world. And it was a nightmare that the bishops had little hope of awaking from. Well, I've focused in the last few minutes on the Directory for Public Worship and its different parts or sub-directories. And that's because it's a focal point of the Assembly's Reformation of Worship. And it seems to me that the Directory for Worship is itself a rich text worthy of, worthy of, of discovery, worthy of reading. And you can easily find it on the internet by Googling it. Uh, it also seems to me that the directory leaves us with various lessons or priorities that the Westminster Assembly tried to communicate to its readers. And in an exercise of self-restraint, I thought this morning I would mention only five. Perhaps some of these might be useful to you too. The first principle that one encounters in opening the directory is the priority of, wor of, of public worship over private worship. Back in those days so different from our days, there were people who were sometimes late for church. Uh, the assembly gave counsel to these people, urging them not to whisper, talk, say hi, uh, when they're sneaking into church, uh, especially when they're late. Back in those days, there were also people, you'll not, it's difficult to believe, but there were people who would get behind on their private devotions. Um, and they would try to catch up on a Sunday morning and use church as the occasion to do that. <laughs> and when people were late for church who were also behind on their private devotions, they would sometimes come into church, sit in a pew uh, in the few churches that actually had luxuries like pews. Many, many did not. Uh, many we just stood. Uh, and uh, they, they would prefer to, to read or maybe quietly pray uh, and, and catch up on the service in, in, a, in a few moments' time. They wanted their private moment in the midst of public worship. The assembly in its directory tells people arriving late simply to get their bearings and join into the worship service wherever the congregation is at that moment. They're to set their private worship aside in favor of public worship because that's the priority on the Lord's Day. I sometimes meet people who feel like they need time alone with the Lord, so they don't want to go to worship. And the assembly saw the importance of what we do together in the Lord's presence on the Lord's day and called people to be there and be participating while they're there, if at all possible. Well, what was true of private worship was also true of work. Sometimes a week's work doesn't get done. And the Lord's day is not our opportunity to catch up on that, but to take a break from it. Both King James and then especially King Charles I thought that Puritans were taking the Lord's Day too seriously. The first time King James tried to make that point, even his bishops revolted and he had a trouble on his hands. Charles did never learn from the lessons that his father faced. And so he also tried to introduce legislation encouraging people not to take Sundays so seriously. Bishops under Charles began to jail ministers who preached too seriously about the Sabbath. Prison time was a kind of sabbatical for, for, for Puritans who preached about the Sabbath. And at least one of the Westminster divines took the time he had in jail because he preached on the Sabbath to write a book about the Sabbath. The Assembly's reflections on the priority of one day over six days likely has some relevance for today. Evangelicals have been running a kind of decades-long experiment, seeing if we can reduce the Lord's Day to a 60-minute Sabbath without any negative impact on the church 
its work, its members. We've reduced the time we spend with the Lord and with each other, hoping that we'll build a strong generation of Christians, at least as strong as the one that's gone before us. Well, uh, not all the data is in from this experiment, but the results that we've seen thus far do not look encouraging. Uh, Many Christians are weak, uh, doctrinally anemic, in part because of a lack of biblical instruction and fellowship. The Westminster Divines believe that if the health of the church in their age was to dramatically improve, the use of Sundays was the variable, at least an important variable, that people needed to consider. Perhaps we need to consider this ourselves. Well, an emphasis on the Sabbath was bucking recent trends back then and some societal traditions. But another priority that emerges from reading the directory is the priority of the Christian conscience over tradition. The conscience over tradition, at least when it came to worship. This uh, shows up in the directory for public worship. The preface carefully expresses gratitude for the early history of the Book of Common Prayer and the people who wrote it. But it also complains about uncomfortable features in that book. Features which bishops in turn began to enforce with increasing ferocity as the years wore on. Although the Book of Common Prayer was written because of new light from the, coming from the Word of God at the time of the Reformation, Nonetheless, some of the formulas, some of the patterns for prayer in the service were impractical. They crowded out extended scripture reading and time for solid sermons. Other practices were, uh, were, were too open to abuse, too close to Roman Catholicism, too likely to enable lazy ministers, or simply too different from the practice of Reformed churches who are more closely following the Word of God. But more than anything else, the Westminster Assembly pleaded that the traditions of the church were offending biblical consciences constrained by the word of God. Well, buried in this emphasis is new weight being placed, new emphasis being placed on liberty of conscience, on Christian liberty. Liberty from all the commands of men to believe any doctrine or, or, to, or to perform any practice not called for in the word of God. The authority of the church and its ministers is a real authority, provided that it commands what God commands. But it's a limited authority, for it must not go beyond God's commands. Thus, ministers and elders were called, are called by the directory, not to do more than commanded by God. Uh, We must not just command what we wish. We must persuade consciences from scripture to do what God calls us to do. Well, I'm already uh, beginning my fourth point with all of that, aren't I? Uh, the human conscious, conscious needs a guide for every part of us is impacted by the fall, by the cares of this world, by the temptations of Satan. God does not guide through the conscience alone. Especially in doctrine and worship, the Holy Spirit tutors our conscience with his holy text. This is another principle that emerges from the directory, the priority of the word for worship. Ironically, this emphasis on the word of God is not obvious on the pages of the directory itself, even if it's presented in the preface. The directory itself only cites scripture explicitly once, 1 Corinthians 11, in a section on the Lord's Supper. Again, you need to go to the preface to find the assembly's programmatic statements about scripture. First, the directory takes care to hold forth such things as are of divine institution in every ordinance, like Bible reading, prayer. That is of divine institution. In other words, the Westminster Assembly would only require activities in worship that are required by God. That's the principle that regulates the worship commended by the assembly. Second, the preface explained, in everything we have endeavored to set forth according to the rules of Christian prudence, agreeable to the general rules of the word of God. In other words, after laying out the main parts of worship, 
and the main principles. The assembly would only offer suggestions as to how each part of worship should be conducted. This is very important. The sufficiency of scripture for worship is stated with authority in the preface. The application of that principle is then seen not only in what the directory directs, but also in what it suggests. Every time the directory requires what's to be done, but then recommends how it's to be done, it is showing the need for the word in some things and wisdom in other things. Just how one might promote soundness in doctrine and prayer or help and furniture for ministers assembling services. Just how one does these things cannot be stipulated in set forms or words. The assembly offers extensive suggestions, but its refusal to require that everyone follow its model testifies to a core idea in constructing worship services. Later codified in the assembly's confession, the, wor the worship of God requires his word for principles and for parts of worship and requires his wisdom for practice. Well, perhaps the most remarkable thing about the directory is its prioritization of honesty over courtesy. What do I mean by that? Well, in a day when polite society stalked even the angriest petitions to Parliament with standard phrases like the right honorable and humble advice and so on, the assembly, although never not courteous, was remarkably forthright about the failings not only of ministers, but also of magistrates, of civil rulers. At least once a week, the assembly recommended corporate prayer, prayer including a confession of the sins of the current leadership of the church, should be made, uh, including the leadership of local congregations. Uh, the assembly also called for, for prayers for leaders of the state um, and, uh, and, and, and prayers about their failings. Of course, the failings of ordinary uh, people and their sins are also addressed in the assembly's recommendations for prayers. But in the prayer about the sins of ministers and prayers about the sins of magistrates, it's also interesting that people of the congregation, Christian people everywhere, are also called to confess the ways in which we are accessories to their crimes. We're called to confess the ways in which we encourage or enable patterns of sins that we see in our leaders. Ways in which our words or behaviors or attitudes or demands encourage sin in those who are trying to lead us. I wonder what a respectful, honest prayer like that would sound like in a pastoral prayer today. What would we say about our leader's sins? And then the way in which we as citizens encourage or enable the kinds of sins that we complain about in our leaders? Is there any way in which our culture and us in our culture actually facilitates the problems in government? We prefer to complain about it. How might we pray about it or even confess about it? The only leader that the assembly does not criticize, even in the most honest prayers, and the one on whom the assembly most often reflects is, of course, our true worship leader. A tone of absolute reverence, dependence, and gratitude for Christ is heard from the beginning to the end of the assembly's directions. And if we're to use the directory today, we'd be encouraged to begin the service in all reverence and humility, uh, acknowledging the incomprehensible greatness and majesty of the Lord in whose presence they do in a special manner appear. The opening prayer would humbly admit our faults and our utter inability to do so great a work as to worship God. And because of this, we'd be called to humbly beg him for pardon, assistance, and acceptance in the whole service then to be performed and on the word read 
and in all the name and meditation on the Lord Jesus Christ that is to characterize our services. This same spirit is carried out in the longest prayer of the service and confession of sin and asking for and acknowledging mercy and prayers for personal sanctification and worldwide gospel proclamation. Christ is there. But I've been speaking for a long time. And at this point, you're probably not interested in me discussing uh, the longest prayer. You're probably interested in me getting to the final prayer in the directory as evidence that we might almost be done this morning. But let me close by adapting the final paragraph of one prayer in the directory. And after that, I'll see if we have time for questions. So let us actually pray together um, and then see if we have any remaining moments for comments. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, because we've been unprofitable hearers in times past and now cannot of ourselves receive as we should the deep things of God and the mysteries of Jesus Christ, which require a spiritual discerning. We pray that you who, who teach us to profit would graciously please to pour out the spirit of grace together with the outward means thereof, causing us to attain such a measure of the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus our Lord and in him of the things that belong to our peace, that we may account all things but as dross or rubbish in comparison with him. And that we, tasting the first fruits of the glory that's to be revealed, may long for a more full and perfect communion with him, that where he is, we may be also, and enjoy the fullness of those joys and pleasures which are at his right hand forevermore. We pray more particularly that you would in a special manner furnish your servant called to dispense the bread of life unto your household with wisdom, fidelity, zeal, and utterance, that, you, that he may divide the word of God aright to everyone his portion in evidence and demonstration of the spirit and power, and that you, O Lord, would circumcise the ears and hearts of the hearers to hear, love, and receive with meekness the engrafted word, which is able to save our souls and make us as good ground to receive in the good seed of the word and strengthen us against the temptations of Satan, the cares of the world, the hardness of our own hearts, and whatsoever else may hinder our profitable and saving hearing, that so Christ may be formed in us and live in us, that all our th thoughts might be brought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and our hearts established in every good word and work forever. Amen. Okay, I think we have two minutes and ten seconds before coffee break. So we have time for a question, but maybe not an answer. <laughs> Any questions, comments, statements of overwhelming brilliance? Yes, Jesse. Jesse hand, Jesse's hand, for those of you who couldn't see, his hand began to get up uh, when I asked for statements of overwhelming brilliance. That's when he, 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 he uh, felt qualified. In your section on the priority of, on, sorry, uh, of the word for worship and your distinction about um, what must be done versus yeah. recommendations yeah. and how those things were to be done, yeah. um, is there any evidence there was disagreement um, or debate about which things fell on which side of that. Yeah, you know, um, it's interesting. So, so the part of the... So there are many debates at the assembly, and not all the notes are very good. Interestingly, the, for whatever reason, the, the, the debates about worship were taken in shorthand. I don't mean just mean messy hand. I mean shorthand, actually little symbols and so on. There was only one person in the world who could decode that. Um, her name was Frances Henderson. She studied at Oxford. She charged a fortune. Um, here, here's the thing. I'm, I, this is all like a preface to an excuse for not having a good answer. Um, uh, uh, most of the minutes, because I've, I kind of worked on them myself, um, I've been over it again and again and again. I have a decent memory of what it's about. 
That stuff, I did go over it a lot, but not as much. So I'm a little bit more forgetful about what's there. I don't, however, remember a debate about um, elements of worship and so on. Um, there's much more debate about things like this. We must, okay, we, we agree we must pray. How do we pray? Does, do prayers, should prayers be written out? Should prayers be extemporary? Does the Holy Spirit bless a minister more with no notes when he prays than with notes and so on? Um, same with preaching and so on. So that's the, it's, the, it's the wisdom of how to do things that seems to have featured much more largely than what to do. Yeah, there doesn't seem, I don't remember reading real debate about what the component parts ought to be for a worship service. Yeah. Well, that did it, didn't it? Let's go have some coffee. Is that, is that right? Sounds good. And we can always take extra questions later if people... That's right, yeah. There'll yeah. be time for a question and answer uh, after the second session. Uh, so we do have refreshments in the fellowship hall. Uh, you, hopefully you found that these booklets were a, a nice gift that were brought to us this morning. Scripture Index to the Westminster Standards. It was put together by uh, Stephen Pribble, an OPC minister. I think it was uh, published back in 1994. Super useful. Um, and so, yeah, very useful. These are free. We do have some books that you can buy uh, on a book table in the fellowship hall. And so uh, please uh, make use of that, enjoy the refreshments, and we'll meet back here in 30 minutes at 11 a.m. Thank you.